Hello everyone and welcome to this special podcast uh, in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. And today we have Darren Cox, who is the, uh, the architect of the GT Academy Gamer to Racer program, uh, and the former head of Nismo, which was uh, Nissan Motorsport. And Darren is here um, to talk about a number of things and a number of anecdotes I'm sure will uh, we'll, we'll drop in, people falling out of grandstands and stuff like that. <laughs> but Darren's no, I here. can't tell that one again. Oh, really? Oh, dear, that'll have to go in the extras. Um, Darren's here mostly to talk about what's been happening in the World Endurance Championship and uh, sports cars recently because there's been a, a seismic change and then another seismic change and then another seismic change. So, so Darren's, here is, Darren's here to kind of deconstruct and demystify what's been going on because he's effectively... Well, he has been an insider. He knows how the FIA works. He knows how the World Endurance Championship works. So um, he's the man to talk to. Um, and I'm pleased as well that Jack Phillips is here because Jack is probably among the motorsport team, the guy who knows more about sports car racing in the World Endurance Championship than anyone. So I welcome try. to you, Jack. You all right? Yeah. And I shall lean on Jack then yeah. <laughs> those gaps in my knowledge. <laughs> I'm going to just take a step back and let you two uh, converse. Um, and we've got Alan. Thanks, Alan, for uh, recording us as ever. Um, but let's just dive straight in. What is going on with the World Endurance Championship at the moment, the rules and global sports car racing? Well, I think on the surface, um, if you read the headlines, global sports car racing looks to be in disarray. But actually what it is, is we're in a cycle of manufacturers changing their investment strategies. And this isn't new. You know, Readers of Motorsport Magazine would have seen this a number of t times. But if you take the global picture for sports car racing, it's very, very healthy. Yeah. Um, if you look at IMSA with the DPI program, if you look at the great job that the SRO with Stefan Rattel is doing on GT3, you look at some of these big new... Uh, landmark blue ribbon races yeah. that are getting a huge amount of support, whether that be Bathurst 12 Hours or, or some of the uh, races in the, the Middle East. You know, Dubai 24 Hours has been going a while now, and, and there's others popping up here and there. We talked earlier about the Suzuka 10 Hours, which is a, a, a new to the calendar, plus other series like Super GT carries on. So sports car racing generally is very, very um, in, in a very, very healthy position, but mm -hmm. we're just in that position where big manufacturers at one moment can't spend enough money in a series and the next minute they're not spending anything and this boom and bust cycle is something that Le Mans has um, you know, had going uh, back a number of years. I guess the issue is no one saw it coming yeah, or, or, yeah. and they should have done. You know, this is not unusual, this was probably predictable um, and they haven't, uh, they haven't seen it coming and, and made the right changes at the right time to, to ensure that there was a smooth transition. Yeah. But, uh, did we not see it coming? Because the rumours were even three years ago that Audi was pulling out, Porsche was likely to follow. Is the blame maybe at the FIA and ACO's door, the fact that they didn't have a plan B, as has been shown recently with the flood of various sh slightly strange statements coming out? 
that there was no plan B, there was no backup. Well, I think that's the problem. There's Since the announcement, there's been a plan B, plan C, plan D, which yeah. is what you were mentioning, <laughs> Nick. And, and I think that chopping and changing of plans it doesn't do anyone any, any um, benefit. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of it is to try and keep Toyota for as long as possible. Uh, part of that was to get Peugeot, which I'm sure we're going to touch on the, 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 the statements that were made at, at that point about um, Peugeot looking like they're not going to come back to, to Le Mans. Um, but actually, if you peel, the surface, peel this off the surface, you've got a plan. There was a plan there, which was they knew that they needed more privateers, yeah. and they put a privateer plan in place, and there are privateers out there, including um, Janetta, that will be running LMP1 cars next year. Now, is that what the fans want? Is that what the, the series needs? That's a completely different question, but there is a replacement for those mm. big-budget LMP1 um, projects that are, that are in, the, in, in the plan and in the hopper. I think that is an important question, though, isn't it? How how important is uh, or are the manufacturers to um, to the LMP one class in particular? Can the LMP one class have its full glory with Genetas and not Porsche? The the problem is is the rules. You know, we all love an underdog, don't we? And you know, one of my favourite um, Le Mans campaigns was you know, if you actually go back, Audi was racing itself. Uh, and and yeah. the privateers had half a shot. You know, if Audi mm. had problems, the privateers were, th were there or they certainly could, could get on the podium if one of the Audis fell over. Mm. And I remember, you know, Roll Centre Racing, Martin Short, you know, Absolutely, that, that yeah. fantastic story. They should have been on the podium, uh, should have, would have, could have, of course. But, um, you know, that was a, a, the brilliant underdog story against Audi. And there was no one else, it was Audi. So, um, you know, this isn't new. We've just had a very, very... Um, uh, high peak that at one point there was four manufacturers in, in LMP1 and now there might be one or none. So mm. it, it's all about just smoothing that curve out and that's not something that's happened before. Um, but to answer your question, something else will have to happen. Uh, yeah, on its own, having a Dallara badged as a, you know, a Russian bank's car mm. versus a Janetta is not going to fire everyone up as much as, you know, Porsche versus Audi versus Toyota. Yeah. Also, an LMP2 beating a Ginetta doesn't have the same story, the same fairy tale as Pescarolo beating Audi. That's a problem as well for the ACO because, in twofold really, because A, that like that's not a story, and also the LMP2s are what eight hundred thousand. That's the engine for the Ginetta, and then you've got one point two million or so to pay out for the car. So why would you do the private privateers? Is the balance isn't there yet? I don't think. And, and there should have been a balance. I think you know there yeah. was an opportunity to balance out the privateers three years ago. You know the privateers could not get anywhere near um, the manufacturers, even if you had the best privateer with a massive budget. The rules were written in a way that you were always going to be twenty laps down at the end yeah. of uh, Le Mans. Now you know it would be great if you had manufacturers there to go toe to toe with the privateers. That hasn't happened. So then we haven't got these hero privateers coming up. Um, that then become the heroes themselves that then can be taken on by the new challengers. So we, we haven't got a, a story curve. You lost some some good independent LMP1 teams you know, that have gone down to LMP2, for example, uh, as Rebellion have. Um, and then you've got to feed the funnel again. So you know, there, I know there's a lot of questions. Well, do we really want this new LMP1? Should we not just have LMP2 as a top class? But it's the same difference. Mm. It's basically spec, certainly spec engines, which I think is also a problem, we can go back to that if you want, uh, and, and you know, four chassis that no one really cares about in terms of, of brands and, and liveries, and to a certain extent, 
drivers that no one cares about because mm-hmm. you know those drivers that you know became the stars of Le Mans, um, whether it be your Buemis or your Hartleys or, or Webbers, um, you know they're, they're not going to be there anymore um, unless something dramatic happens. You know that talent pool is going to move um, into different championships, uh, and, and we hear about Hartley going to IndyCar and, and, and others moving to other championships. So yeah, th- there's not the heroes, whether they be the brands or the people yeah. um, at the top of the the, the class. I'd, I'd be quite binary about it because my level of knowledge isn't, isn't the same as yours. Um, so I was at Donington on Tuesday um, for a, a kind of a private track day and uh, I think I saw four or five, nine, five, six, nine, six, twos. Um, has there ever been an opportunity for the rule makers to force manufacturers to, to build and sell chassis to other teams? Um, and would that have de-risked the scenario that we've got now? Why, why won't Porsche sell, why didn't Audi sell their, their, their cars when they pulled out the championship? Why won't Porsche build customer LMP1 cars when they have one of the world's greatest customer <laughs> sports car programs in the world? From your inside knowledge, why, why not? <laughs> I, read a, I read an article the other day that said that the Porsche LMP1 was probably the most complex racing car ever produced. Yeah. If you think about current day Formula 1 cars, everyone's moaning that they're too complicated with the, um, the, the various hybrid systems on them. But then add four-wheel drive and electric motors on top of that. Uh, it's got to run for... 24 hours and you've got a Porsche LMP1 car you know that thing was massively complicated you know, the, the the Porsche factory with hundreds of millions of, of dollars couldn't get it to the end of the race mm-hmm. all the time so how could no you know the, the guy who's you know and you look back at these stories of the the 962s and whatever it, it was a a band of, of weekend warriors with a few pros in there mm-hmm. but they could still run those cars because they were reliable and they were relatively simple then go back try and think about running a diesel Audi um, mm. and all the complications with it within that. So I just think that the cars are too complex for um, uh, the privateers to run. I mean, this is, this is a, a class when people st- stopped using an LMP2 turbo engines because, you know, that was too difficult in terms of heat rejection and, and everything else. So everyone mm. wanted a big lump V8 in the back. So then try and run something as complicated as a Porsche. So I think times have moved on. I don't think mm. that there was there was ever a chance of that happening. There was rumblings when Audi pulled out, but mm. that would have been a pseudo-Audi programme, as, right. as we've seen in the past with Champion and, and, and others. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that wasn't a route that was ever open to anybody. Yeah. At Spa, in the six hours, there was a port race for the Endurance Legends. The most recent car was a 908. Yes. And that had probably 10, 15 Peugeot shirts around it at all times keeping it going and alive and getting it onto track. But then there was a car, there was an R8, which is, what, maybe eight years older? Mm. That was just a man on a laptop plugging yeah. into an IBM Windows 95 laptop. And then there was Martin Short with him and his mates yes, running that exactly. Talara um, to yeah. circle the story. Yeah. And another question um, is kind of around um, how we seem to have on the road car side... Uh, cars that have got close to being prototype level um, racing cars and yet there's never been um, a point where the rule makers have looked at LaFerrari's, Koenigseggs, Pagani's, Bugatti, Chiron's and Veyron's and thought well maybe that's the future of, of our championship um, and I know that say for instance the McLaren P1 the, the, the structure, the mono cell or mono cage whatever it is, is actually um, homologated for racing but it's never raced is that was that ever tabled in in your experience that there would be a hypercar class that would eventually 
move into sports car racing. I know um, uh, Dickie Meaden wrote a really good piece about that actually, <coughs> and so that, that should be uh, yeah. <laughs> but he'll never make it as a racing driver. No. Um, <laughs> That was never discussed, right. and and you, what you've got to think about is at the time I was sat around the, the table, the ACA were on top of the world. You know, they had sure. at that point four manufacturers in place. You know, let, let's be honest, Audi were hosing money at this thing, both mm. on and off track. They basically kept the WEC running, so that's another conversation to be to be had. Um, you know, you had Porsche spending a lot of money on hospitality. We we were doing our own promotions in in a different way. Um, and, and Toyota were there as well, not spending marketing money, but you know, as, as part of the, the setup. So they didn't need anything else. This right. was the guys that they needed to keep happy around the table, and they certainly were keeping you know, Audi happy. You know, they'd been there a long time. Mm. They clearly were in the pound seat. They were the ones that you know discussed the rules first. Audi had a guy full time, absolutely full time. His only job was rules. Well, what does that mean? Of course, it only takes so long to read the rule book and you know, mm. uh, work out how it is and, and give that to the rest of the engineers. He was thinking about what's the rules for next year? How are we going to change it? What's the rules for five years? What's the rules for 10 years? Let's have lunch with the ACO in, in, in Paris and discuss that. That was his one job. And, and of course, that resource for a, a, a small body like the ACO is fantastic. You know, they can lean on those sort of guys. So, um, but at that time, no, there was never any conversation. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard it being said that, well, why don't we um, have the GT class, GTE as, as mm -hmm. the top class at Le Mans? That would be seen as a massive retrograde yeah. step. You know, what would you then do with the LMP2 cars, for example? You, you then restrict them down to be slow in GT and let GTE off the, off the leash. Um, you know, the guys that have been at, at Le Mans are expecting a car to come past them at, you know, 300 and something clicks and, and then suddenly everything's slowed down. You know, we would we would certainly feel that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, that wasn't discussed. And, mm -hmm. I, and I honestly think that prototypes, for as long as we can, should be part of the, the mix of Le Mans. It's always, been, it's always been so. But GTs need to have their own place and need to have the, the focus of the ACO in certain other areas. So... For example, um, something you know that was discussed when I was there, and, and an idea I had that's been sort of changed a little bit, which is why not have a GTE race on the Saturday yeah. specifically for them and with championship <coughs> points? Mm -hmm. Fantastic! Why not? You know, gives them something that they can talk about. They're not just being overtaken by um, you know privateer-driven LMP2 cars. And you'd have you know 60 of them, you know, or 70 of them. As you know, watching via lens at the Nurburgring and seeing so many of these cars, or at Bathurst, you know, that that would be a hell of a spectacle. Mm. Um, so, a, a quick question back to your time at Nissan and, and, and Nismo. Um, did you see the stability, well you obviously saw the stability in the championship when you decided to commit to it, or, or was there still any doubt over the long term future? I mean, you when you went in with Nissan, you went, <laughs> you went in. Yeah, it was um, um, this, this could be a long, this could be a long <laughs> conversation. Well, I had to drop it. Uh, yeah, no, no, and it's fine. And. Um, yeah, of course, we, th we thought it was, uh, there was long-term um, stability there. You know, mm -hmm. our assumption would be that VW uh, Group would, would continue to support it. There was always this, would both brands be there in the long term? But right. I think that was very quickly um, confirmed to us that that would be the case, that they, yeah. would, they would support it. Um, so, yeah, we, th we thought there was long-term stability. And um, there was an article I wrote, and I can't remember if it was for this current amazing magazine or the rubbish one I used to write for, um, <laughs> a, a, about the fact that you know one decision could have such a big impact, i.e. people deciding that they were going to uh, allegedly cheat the uh, emissions. Mm. Um, if you actually just look back at what's happened to Le Mans, that decision has had a massive knock-on effect, yeah. and also 
basically cemented Formula E as the place to be for manufacturers. So it's that law of unintended consequences um, that, that happens. And who knew that that would have happened? If that mm. decision wouldn't have been taken by a group of people, everyone, you know, there wasn't one rogue engineer, was it? No. Um, then uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm sure at least one of the two brands would still be racing long term at Le Mans, if not both of them. So we couldn't see that coming, obviously. Um, so we thought it was it was secure. But what we did, and and you know, there's 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 a whole conversation <laughs> and probably a book in it somewhere <laughs> about what we did. But we knew we couldn't come in and build an Audi copy or a Porsche copy. Mm. We had to do something different because they were spending in effect too much money on this mm. championship um, you know we couldn't derive the marketing um, benefit out of it by spending 350 million it, mm. there's no way that the championship would allow you to get a multiple of 350 million you might as well mm. go and spend it on the Champions League guess what's happened Nissan mm -hmm. are now spending money on the Champions League because they can work out if I spend a pound here I'll get three pound back in terms of value that's not the case in, in WEC mm. so we went a different route this is what we think we can get in terms of value this is our budget, what can we do? Well, to take these guys on, we're gonna have to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's what we did. So um, uh, yeah, that, that's why we ended up with a front-engined um, uh, uh, LMP1 car. How much potential was in that car? What did, what did you see that maybe the rest of us didn't? You're now unwinding months and months of psychiatric treatment, Nick. Oh dear. But, um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> nurse. Well, no, you know, in, in the, the, the biggest mistake, I well, Again, you talk about law of unintended consequences. Uh, a bloke called uh, Andy Palmer left Nissan and went yeah. to Aston Martin. I don't know what's happened since he's gone there. Um, but <laughs> all right. uh, so the, the, he, it was his project. The LMP1 project mm. was one of many projects that he was involved in, and therefore the air cover for the people that were running that project, i.e., me and Ben Bowlby, was was gone. So mm. we then went back to a, what I would state is a normal big company corporate structure. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there wasn't the air cover that you get from a, an enthusiastic knowledgeable figurehead yeah uh, yeah at the top which we've seen that the you know the change that andy's made at aston mm. quieter but still the same carlos tavares who also moved from the renault nissan group over to Peugeot citroen completely changed that business round so if you've got someone like that you know you can you can have the air cover and, and you can progress with seemingly crazy stuff like that obviously we didn't jump into it with our eyes closed there were simulations mm. done mm. the simulations were positive um but let's forget that because engineers can make stuff up and <laughs> tweak a number here and you know change the tire <laughs> model and suddenly you've got a you know a, a porsche beating car for, for a few million quid Be just before le mans i mean our, our mistake was i guess um because andy had gone we had to get the car on track right you know, there was no way of if he was still there maybe we could have delayed it a year um mm. But the biggest mistake, I guess, was was continuing with the hybrid system we had. We mm. should have had a fallback place. So in the end, we ended up with a front-wheel drive car. Um, we would have been better off, um, you know, cutting our losses early and either deciding not to run with the hybrid a lot earlier or trying to find an electric um, uh, uh, um, equivalent yeah. or a delaying year. Mm. But we went to... Um, um, America, the Corvette um, the testing facility, which has mm. now just gone completely out of my head, um, yeah. probably yeah. through that, uh, <coughs> that psych. Uh, it's really worked. <laughs> the analysis. Just forget yeah. all of that. Forget <laughs> all of that. You don't need to think about it. Think nice, shiny lights. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, something bold. It will come to me in a minute. Yeah. And, uh, and um, it, it's basically, Corvette has set it up to be a mini Le Mans, without, basically without the straight. So you've got a, a, the equivalent of the Porsche curves, you've got the chicanes and everything else. So we were testing there, 
and I bought an LMP2 car over, flew it over in Le Mans spec from Greaves Motorsport. So it won Le Mans. It was the tyres, everything was exactly the same as Le Mans. So I could see if these simulations worked or not. We'd have back-to-back data across the two cars um, and I could see with my own eyes, you know, that this car was going to be quick or not. Mm-hmm. When they're on track, it's not difficult. We had, you know, a reasonable driver drive it. Harry Tinknell, who was won a few championships in P2 at that time, mm. and, and go out and do, do some laps. Um, the LMP1 car was five seconds a lap faster around that circuit with a lot less straights. And of course, the LMP1 car was a lot quicker down yeah. the straights. Yeah. So even with my small brain, without uh, you know, a myriad of, of um, algorithms for a, um, a, a simulation, um, the car was quick enough. Um, mm. And literally, we boxed that car up. Yes, of course, there were still reliability issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We boxed that car up, and somewhere we lost in the Mid Atlantic. We lost about twenty-five seconds. Mm. That car, based on that that data, just you know, a very simple simulation. If you just extrapolate the the lap time, plus getting all that data and putting it into two separate simulation tools, we were doing low twenties. Three, mm. minute, three minute twenties, which would have put us w- exactly. So, Gary Watkins, who um, occasionally um, uh, uh, puts some stuff into your fantastic magazine, asked me, um, and he reminds me to this day. <laughs> uh, so, you're going to be quicker than the LMP2s. And I think yeah. I used an expletive. Yeah. Uh, expletive. Yes, of course we are, Gary. We wouldn't be here, and we yeah. weren't. So mm-hmm. that wasn't me giving, you know, if I knew we were going to be slower than the LMP2 cars, we wouldn't have come. We wouldn't mm-hmm. have gone to Le Mans. So uh, I- in a way, it's still sort of, um, uh, uh, I still question what, what happened. I mean, there was suspension issues, so the guys were off the curbs. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the curbs were, um, you know, more severe at, at Le Mans than, than we expected. We were breaking rear, rear suspension and right. et cetera. Then, you, you know, we lost time on track. It was rain. I mean, you know, you go through all those things, but, you know, Essentially, yeah, we we somewhere lost twenty seconds versus the, the yeah. simulation, which is um, which is crazy. And then then you then you're dead at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I don't think I've said this publicly what I'm about to say, but I basically wrote a ten point plan. This is how we can fix it. The day or well, the days after Le Mans, and not everyone agreed to that ten point plan. So I suggested that um, someone else take on the project, and I'll go and do my own thing. So yeah. um, that took six months of conversations to um, for me to leave Nissan. Um, yeah. you know, that they didn't want me to leave, um, uh, but I knew, you know, that was always going to be, you know, a sticking point. That you know, I wanted the LMP1 program to go in a different direction than it did, with with, mm-hmm. a, with a certain uh, way of getting out the the issue. And then, you know, three months after I left the camera, the project was canned. Yeah, yeah. Was there ever a thought on, say, Wednesday afternoon at Le Mans to think maybe we should pack up? No. No, because again, if you remember that year, it was raining on Wednesday. Um, everyone was saying that the track conditions were really difficult. Um, it was green, so no, there, there was always a. Hang on a minute, you know, no, we'll, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. Um, you know, we had a bad test session. We were, all, all, you know, two weeks previous, um, but then we hired the Bugatti circuit. Um, the car went, you know, really quick round there. So yeah, it's still you know there was a lot of bigger brains in the, in the garage than me, and and they still can't work out what what happened. So um, yeah, the book could be called "The Lost Twenty Seconds or something, couldn't it? Mm. You should serialise it in a motor racing magazine. That's not a bad idea. Mm. Uh, Nick Mitchell asked. Effectively, you've just answered the question that Nick Mitchell asked us. So thanks, Nick, for the question. Although he did add something. It's one else. of my pseudonyms, actually. I just Is asked really? myself. Questions. Did you ask all of these questions? Yeah. yeah. You need more analysis, I think, if you're asking yourself <laughs> questions. <laughs> um, 
So uh, whose idea was it to, he uses the word alienate, whose idea was it to alienate a load of fans by having a static car on display at Silverstone in the Manchester City Football Club colours? I never understood the thinking behind that. Well, I, I'd forgotten about that one. Um, well, we were supposed to be at the WC round at Silverstone, and actually it was complete opposite idea. The idea was we can't be there in reality, um, so we will take one of our um, spare cars, show car, sorry, mm. um, which we built. I think three show cars, you know, which was quite a, quite a, a commitment at that point, and proved also we weren't just in it just yeah. to, you know for one year. This was supposed to be a long term program, and if anyone that was at Silverstone remembers, we opened the garages. I mean, we got a huge amount of praise, actually, from a lot of fans for doing that. We yeah. couldn't be there. Massive apologies. Sorry, fans, but come and see us in the, in the garage and, and sit. We had, we had kids sitting in the cars, people taking pictures of the yeah, people there, in the yeah. cars, you know, yeah. really trying to be open. Maybe it was the Man City thing. Um, but, yeah, at the time, Nissan were, were um, uh, corporate partners of, of Man City and we did some um, promotion around it. And in my experience... If you co-promote two sports or two things together, you get fans from both of those things mm -hmm. that you know work together. So the idea was, maybe Man City fans would come and you know sort of be interested in Le Mans. Yeah, um, you know, I'm all about trying to get more fans into our sport, and that was that was one thought. I guess the red side of Manchester or or maybe even you know <laughs> London, uh, where United fans might be, didn't didn't appreciate yeah. the city colours on the car. Sure. Marketing was the big success of Nissan, I thought. That whole program, it, it put Le Mans into the eyes of very a very different demographic. But is there a case that it maybe it went too loud too soon, that it may have been better off sliding in under the radar of this... Wow! Look at this. Jack should do this more often. He's done, you know, the, the whole chat show hosting. <laughs> give, give me a little bit of praise and then like kick me in the ball. <laughs> it's like it's good cop, bad cop in one. Yeah, yeah. It was a yeah. great question. Was like, I believe the Americans. Say, great <laughs> question, Jack. Buying time. Yeah, <laughs> twice. And that, no, um, I was going to say when you gave the positive bit at the beginning, I was going to say actually, um, so even someone from the ACO said that um, uh, you're doing too much marketing, which. I would think that you know a promoter and, and someone that's in yeah, the sport how dare would, would want <laughs> would want you know more and more promotion. And I, I think you know, the summary at the beginning was was absolutely spot on. We went out to get a different demographic. The American guys decided to do a Super Bowl ad in the middle of the Super Bowl featuring the LMP1 car. That was our launch. You know, so there was a whole bunch of you know um, people watching the, the the Super Bowl that that suddenly reminded about Le Mans, um, and. I'm, I'm trying to trying to be. I'm trying to think about it again because I haven't thought about it in a long time. Did we go too much too soon? No, I, I don't think we did. I think, you know, you. Uh, I just think. Mo I, I, here was what I said at the time. So maybe I just refer back to that because I was thinking about it a lot more. The reason we stood out for doing a lot of marketing and be perceived as being aggressive was because no one else does marketing particularly well in motorsport. There you go. There's a sweeping statement for you. I can think. I can count uh, my hand how many pieces of motorsport marketing I've been impressed with that have been left field mm -hmm. you know Star Wars with um, uh, Red, Red Bull, Bull in, yeah. in Monaco mm -hmm. uh, BAR putting a car in a I mean there's a lot of BAR stuff by the way mm -hmm. putting a car in a, a, a in a swimming pool hanging a car up by its component parts mm -hmm. even the zip livery the zip know? livery yeah. I mean honestly yeah. there's, there's a whole load of stuff there and now I need to look down the camera and go whoever did that is a genius <laughs> uh, that's a, that is an in joke <laughs> that one um, so yeah and, you know, Audi spent a lot of money on um, uh, um, WEC and, and Le Mans, but what did they do? They did traditional stuff. They got a load of people along, 
uh, had a fantastic time, by the way. You know, they got a lot of people along to Le Mans who opened eyes, I guess, to, to Le Mans. Um, they did TV ads when they won. They they did, I think, one thing they did, which was pretty cool, which was McNish doing the, what's it like to be a, um, a, a Le Mans driver? But it was traditional mm. marketing. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think the reason why we might have rubbed people up the wrong way was we actually did some marketing and we did it in a, in a disruptive way. Uh, and I still get people, maybe one of the questions is, why did you have a slide in your hospitality unit at Le Mans? Because why, why not? Mm. You know, have a bit of fun. You know, we all re remember a Red Bull F1 team when they were fun. Right, they used to have the jumping in music, swimming pools, jumping in swimming yeah. pools yeah, yeah, having the Star Wars guys doing crazy stuff. Now mm. they're just another another racing team that you know, wins a lot, um, mm. but doesn't do the marketing. And I think you've got to have that that type of uh, mental approach. So, it, uh, what what absolutely is not the case was it wasn't a marketing program that was going racing. And and I, you know, I took there was this German guy uh, journalist who was completely anti us, of course, and. Um, he was standing outside our garage, and I, I saw him, so I said, come in. He says, are you sure? I said, yeah, just come in, come and have a look around. Mm. He says, well, I'm not even allowed in the Audi garage. I said, no, come and have a look around. And he couldn't believe the amount of effort we were putting into to that program. He, he had written that this is just a marketing stunt. Then he comes in, we've got three sets of bodywork per each car ready out the back. We've got, mm. I don't know how many people we had because we were bringing people in you know, all the time to, to, to catch up. We had, I don't know, 120 people on site working on the, on the cars to get that ready. And he went out of there and said, I take back what I said, this is a proper racing effort. And, and everyone in that garage, you, you look at anybody in that garage, they're racers. I mean, mm. you know, next weekend, I was just saying to Jack, I'm doing a, a Spa 24 hours, for example. I'll leave that hanging. Uh, you know, Ben, ben Bowlby, um, uh, you know, a racer at heart, you know, mm. uh, Ricardo de Villa, you know, mm. uh, you know, unrivaled background as an engineer. There wasn't people in there that are not racers that are corporate suits in there going, right, just make sure you get our brand across. Yeah, mm. guys. It wasn't. It was make that car go faster. Why didn't anyone um, continue the work that you'd started on the marketing side? Not in this, not in Nismo or, or Nissan, but Porsche or Audi or Toyota. Because it, it felt like when I was there at Silverstone, for instance, and there were kids climbing in and out of the car, all I could think about was me as a six-year-old getting on Barry Sheen's bike at a bike show, and this was one of the most Snap. inspirational things, yeah, I, inspirational yeah, things yeah, ever, yeah. you know. But then when I went back after you guys had left, the, the doors weren't were still pretty much closed really for uh, a Porsche and Audi is it it must be depressing surely that nobody picked up on what you were doing um, well, well it's like I um, took the bat on you know uh, I, I wrote a piece for you guys um, recently talking about you know the, the experience at Silverstone as a Grand Prix and, um, mm. and, and I, I think Liberty will make some big changes and they'll, they'll make a positive uh, impact on the sport but at the moment their F1 experiences is a bunch of celebrities and, and execs driving around in two, two seaters. Seats. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. no good for the fans apart from the fact there's a load of noise which is because I think they're V10s aren't they? Yeah. Um, so I think yeah just it's just a mentality thing and, and I go back and I was having a bit of Bants uh, on uh, on 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 so uh, down with the kids on on um, Twitter last night that uh, Corinne Jandock was quoted saying um, a great way of coming into uh, motorsports through esports. Well, I said oh, someone should have thought of that. And what I put afterwards was, I'm still surprised no one's done another GT Academy. I mean, it's yeah. just it's obvious. Why hasn't anyone done that? Mm. Um, so I guess it's and and we went to Porsche. We went to some LMP1 marketing meetings. And I didn't go to all of them, you know, one of my team went, but the, the Porsche guys going, oh, we love what you do. It's, it's fantastic. Well done. We could never get away with that. 
It's just a corporate culture, isn't it? That, that mm-hmm. happens. You get corporate culture of Red Bull at the time. They're doing all that crazy stuff. Was going to do crazy stuff. BAR was going to do crazy stuff. We've got a lot of fag money. How can we spend it? Literally, mm-hmm. um, we were. You know, we've got. We can't spend money on media. Um, and and I'll give, I, actually, I'll give you an example. Just in terms mm-hmm. of how it worked, we had a massive marketing campaign set up. I mean, like blow anyone away. And at the last minute, it was cut. And my boss said. Um, which of course then wasn't Andy, mm-hmm. you can spend the money you bring in. So all we could spend was the, the, the sponsor money. So that wasn't Nissan money spent on the marketing. All the Nissan money went on the car. All right. it, Now the, the Super Bowl ad, that was different. That was an advertising budget for America. Yeah. But all the money that was in our hands on that project that was Nissan's money went on making the car go faster. Yeah. So but I, I, to answer your question, I think it's... Is it top down again? Does it yeah, need an absolutely. Andy Palmer? It needs uh, a, uh, yeah. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and I also think you know, that as you know better than anyone, Nick, you know, the media world's changing, and I think more and more people are going to have to do this. It is easy to put an ad in the the Telegraph the following day after you win a race, and and tick a box because you you you. Your CEO reads that uh, paper, so he sees it. Mm. Um, to do, try and do what we've just discussed at Silverstone, letting people in the car or whatever, it's like, well, what, what value did I get out of that? Well, I don't know how to measure it, boss. Mm. Okay, well, that was a bit of a waste of time. Mm. So there is that mentality. And it is just, it's, it's fear of failure as well, isn't it? You, right. you, to do this sort of stuff, you, you've, got to, you, you've got to try it. But it's not, just the t- it's not just the teams, it's not just the manufacturers, it's also some of the events as well as what you talked about. I think a massive missed opportunity, I was speaking to someone about Rallycross this morning, um, you know, Ken Block's not in Rallycross yeah. in in Europe or whatever they call, whatever it's called, the world. Uh, that's a massive missed opportunity. Mm. Why didn't Rallycross do more with Ken Block? He gets mm. millions and millions of views of what he does. Why wasn't there that crossover of Ford that doing it or or IMG or, or Block and his team himself to make that crossover? So the numbers didn't stack, so they pulled out. So yeah, there's. I mean, you you guys think about it. What the, what the shining examples of motorsport where you go, that's a brilliant piece of marketing. That's a great piece of promotion that will help our sport because we it mm-hmm. was almost dirty. What you're you're marketing this? You're you're doing PR around it. Mm. You know, people sort of. But that's the whole point is to push our sport forward because. And the example I use is Nitro Circus. I don't know if you yeah, see yeah, that. Seen it. Yeah, but a bunch yeah. of crazy dudes Fabulous. jumping stuff in indoor arenas. I saw that a guy in a wheelchair do a backflip. Yeah, and, 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 and they do it in. They do amazing. It, yeah, I know, and they do it in um, shopping trolleys. And yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just Those little mad. micro scooters. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that. W- when I was a kid, my dad took me to Brands Hatch, and my Nitro Circus was a club race where a wheel fell off the car and nearly hit my brother <laughs> on the head as it came across the um, the, the fence. Uh, and you know it was wet and windy and the food was rubbish but that was the entertainment was available now we can go to the o2 sit in our uh, nice comfy chair order our um super size uh, diet coke and and popcorn watch a bunch it's of crazy blokes with fireworks and loud music do that so, so entertainment's yeah. changed so motorsport's got to change with it and i don't think that we have so i, I just ask that question what do you think what's the best piece of marketing non-Nissan uh, GT Academy type of thing that you, to, that you two have seen. Um, I don't know, sometimes I feel too close to it. I, I, I'm not sure if I can pick one thing out, but I would I would probably, I'd identify a theme that is um, being ignored, I think, by most um, organisers. Um, and that's this, the, the idea of reminding adults what it was like when they were kids and they were first starting to get into motorsport and reminding um people just how pure that experience is of being a kid and climbing on Barry Sheen's bike or or even seeing your hero you know in a paddock it's we've kind of forgot that and it's the long-term 
um, the long-term gains you get for that. I mean, I can still trace back my uh, passion for motorsport to those tiny little moments. And I didn't climb in a, you know, in an LMP1 car. You know, if I, I probably would have fainted if I was given the chance to get in a, you know, a 956 or something like that. So, so first of all, I think manufacturers should just kind of. Uh, filter out a lot of the crap and the, the BS that goes on and just think what would a six, seven, eight year old be really excited about when I, what would I have been excited about? And then lay it on, you know, during the, the weekend's activities. Um, and then I think, I mean, we're obviously going to go on to esports, but what we've got at the moment in, in the modern age is the opportunity to um, inspire the next generation of motor racing enthusiasts via gaming, which we didn't have, you know, when, when we were kids. And I think it's naive to poo-poo the kind of the opportunity that there is with esports um, to 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 trigger that um, what will ultimately be a lifetime passion for the sport. Most people get into motor racing, don't get in and get out. You get in and you're there until you, the day you pop your clocks, you know. So um, so yeah, I can't identify one apart from the glorious work at Nismo during the. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say the Calsonic era of R32 <laughs> GTRs, actually. But no, I, I, you know, I do admire the work, the work you did then, but Jack, you're um, 50 years younger than I am. So well, you, my, I, my, I remember my first race event I went to, I sat in a Mini mini 7, I think, Mini Melia, and that was incredible when I was sort of six years old, five years old, and that's just a little Mini. And I remember there was a, um, a pink car with yellow spots, which obviously as a six-year-old, that's Mr. Blobby. So <laughs> <laughs> my <Dad>. lord <laughs> I, I, I need to it's send you a takes. picture of my dad's um, uh, rallycross car which was a mini really uh, and the colour scheme on it <laughs> may have been the same but, no, but no, then yellow with black spots uh, I actually think Red Bull is actually doing quite a good job with Max Verstappen and Danny Ricciardo yeah no that's right fair now point because that, that is fair point they are making them what they are which is a normal 20 something having the time of their lives racing caravans behind an Aston Martin that's we all that puts us into their shoes it puts you're, us you're absolutely right and it's not false yeah. that's no, it's not they're, you know, they, they, they're fortunate in that they've got two guys who you can effectively go we know you're not going to make some massive corporate you know disaster statement so take a funny selfie of Max on a plane fast asleep yeah. or tow a caravan and crash it kind of thing so they're fortunate can you imagine any other F1, is, is there any other driver in F1 that you could trust to be themselves? <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's another long, long uh, question. Maybe they're the only two that maybe have, currently have the persona to do it. Everyone, yeah, well, is, everyone else sad, is so it? driven to, <laughs> to succeed. Whereas they funny enough, they're, they're probably the two best prospects on the grid to be yeah. world champion. Yeah. That hasn't been yet, so yeah. is there something there? I, I, while we've been talking, I thought of another one that's a great example, and I can't believe it's not been copied, which is the approach that Lord March takes to Goodwood, generally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, whether you talk marketing, you talk the event itself, the way he you know, monetizes it, the way he's expanded it. To, you know, manufacturers now have to be involved. They've now got to, you know, it's basically the British Motor Show now. Mm. So that, that's another example, but it's, it's, it's a bit too premium. It's not what we're talking about, which is the you know, uh, access points for, for, for people. But you know, one of my great memories recently is just standing behind a Lotus 25, behind the exhausts and yeah. starting up and you know, smelling, the, smelling the exhaust. So um, mm. you know, it's, it's, that, it's that closeness, isn't it? And that's mm. the problem with F1, isn't it? It's always been about the exclusivity, which puts the barriers in between the fans and, and, and the action. Yeah. Right, okay, we're going to get onto a couple more questions. And, um, from me? Yeah, from you. You've got multiple personalities here, <laughs> Darren. <laughs> that's a real problem. <laughs> uh, 
Stephen Gate, uh, given Nismo in Japan could build a Super GT GTR that could lap Fuji in just five seconds slower than a P1 that has better aerodynamics and hybrid power, wouldn't it have been better to utilize their experience with front-engine cars and get them to design the GTR LM Nismo? P.S. This is not Nissan bashing, as I was a huge fan of the car. I was about to say I recognize the, the name, so um, appreciate right. the... Uh, it's not me. Um, <laughs> appreciate the, um, uh, the 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 point. Uh, I mean, you know, that's a long question. Um, lo lots of different rules, and of course, Nismo were were fully involved. Um, you know, we had, and and uh, the, the comments about marketing being good. Everything behind the garage was down to me. So, including driver signing. So, you know, I'm I, I'm happy that. You know, someone like Harry has continued his his career, and, and yeah. he'll have a long career. He's, he was a great, not a find. We didn't find him. You know, we identified him doing a great job previously, and and signed him. And uh, you know, so the, I think the driver lineup, with one or two exceptions, pound for pound was the best. Um, the marketing was great. The PR was great. You know, blah 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 blah. We had five people uh, on the, um, the the engineering committee of which, or the racing committee of which I was one. That's your problem straight away. There's, it was a committee, and that's just the Japanese way of doing things. Um, and if you look at the success that those guys have had in in Japan, and it's phenomenal, by the way. You know, we were talking earlier. Uh, uh, they might be winning their fourth championship in five years, uh, but that is built on years and years and years and years and years of doing the same thing. You know, it's, it's the quote from. Um, uh, that I heard um, the, the other day for, um, from Warren Buffett talking about compounding. Yeah, it's just about just keep doing the same thing and you get better and better at it. And in the end, all that effort adds up. This wasn't like that. This was we have to get in quick. You know, there's a window here in terms of the rules. Um, let's let's get in and do it quickly. So the the knowledge was utilised, um, but um, yeah, it, you know, to copy that car wouldn't wasn't necessarily the right way of doing it. So um, I need a lot I need a lot longer to answer that question. But um, yeah, we'll fair, fair point. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, I, do, you, do you want to jump in? No, I was just going to say about the attraction of. WEC for manufacturers like it appealed to Nissan. Who or why would well, it let's be honest? It didn't manufacture it, it. Absolutely didn't. It's nothing to do with WEC. It's Le Mans. You get eighty percent of the value of your investment for two weeks at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. The rest of the championship is almost irrelevant in terms of value. And you can see different. You know, uh, people take different approaches to it uh, in terms of the effort. You know, some of them just use the rest of the championship as a test. Um, you know, which bodywork you're going to use at Silverstone or Spa. You almost try and think that you want to just get ready for Le Mans. So, um, just from a value point of view, um, unless you'd look like you're going to win the championship, and then you say, "Oh, it's the most important thing ever." I think that the issue is um, you know, that the championship's built potentially in the wrong way. In the fact that, um, first of all, it's cookie cutter. So, you know, endurance racing has always been about individual character of the races. You know, whether it be Sebring or mm. whether it be you know Nurburgring 24 Hours or you know, any any of the big races, they've had their own character. What the ACO tried to do was copy the F1 model from 20 years ago when every race had to be exactly the same to the same length to the same process to the same format what works in Mexico isn't necessarily from a, from a sports car race isn't necessarily going to be the same that works in Japan um, so you know for, there's a massive heritage of, of sports car racing in, in Japan so why not make that race a thousand kilometres because that's the, yeah. the length they understand go to Sebring and do 
a 10 hour or 12 hour race whatever fits there not having six hour races just moving around in, in terms of character i mean that's just a small point but the point is you know those other races are shaky they just so happen to be kept together because of a championship so i think that's part of the root cause of the problem of this sudden ta-da we've got a super series because mm. actually the wc struggles to make sense in 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 some respects from a from a brand point of view and also from from the ACO's um, uh, uh, commercial point of view as well. Jack, give us an overview of Super Series and... Um, yes, please, Jack. Explain exactly what yeah, that's well about. And, and two Le Mans 24 hours. And yes. Give us, give us an overview. Can I just say one good bit of news in that is Silverstone having an hey. August date. Oh, yes. yes. That is just genius. I've been saying to Stuart Pringle and the guys up there and the ACO, give Silverstone a date in the summer. And in simple terms, as people are getting on and off the ferries on the way home, here's the Le Mans reunion. It's at Silverstone. Free camping. Come along and watch these cars race again. Brilliant. So that's the one positive. Yeah, I've camped at Silverstone for some of those WEC April races. You are mad. Next time come stay at my house. It was very cold. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, I'm making Le Mans the centrepiece by putting it at the end of the season. And at the beginning in one of them. Yes. I'm, I, I'm literally so confused it's a about where we are. 14 with. month season, the first one. Originally, it had no Silverstone. Um, and then there was um, outcry, understandably, because this is basically the WEC's biggest, most fervent fan base is in the UK. And to not come to the UK made no sense. Yeah. Uh, but then that, within maybe a month, was changed, yeah, which they then said yeah. um, was for. They span it a little bit, as as championships do. Yeah. That's what, uh, by saying that Aston Martin will be the delighted, and this is for our UK fans. Mm. Um, but basically, the series now starts at Spa, and then going to, to Le Mans, and then there was a break, no Nurburgring, the couple of flyaways back to Spa, and then back to Le Mans. Mm-hmm. That was season one. So it was, a, it was still a huge expense, but they made it because there were bigger gaps. They could freight cheaper. They could. It was all this economical. It was made more sense for the manufacturer, supposedly, but it didn't make sense for the fans. So now there's a doubleheader again in August with ELMS, which is always a good event be- without the weather. So yeah. now, now hopefully, it'll be a good event with weather, but probably still wind because it's Silverstone. <laughs> so what? So if you won both the Le Mans races, you had the World Championship because you'd have two double point races. Yeah, it's just kind of offering it to Toyota is a thinly veiled carrot for Toyota. They can finally win them on twice and win the World Championship because they'd have double points. Except they've done very well at not winning Le Mans. Yes, but they, they would in theory be able to go slower because there are no other manufacturers. Um, Let's go slow to win. Yes. That's kind of malfunction over that. Well, it worked in the 80s. Yeah, it, that's, that's the way it used to be. Re- read, read any of Dan Gurney's um, uh, pieces about Le Mans or... Even even Derek Bell, to a certain extent, at the you know, beginning of where he was, it was about... Anyway, I'm not saying that that should they be the way of doing it these though. days. <laughs> yeah, no, they had competition. <laughs> yes, they were, they were going slow, uh, as well as everyone else having to go slow to yeah. maintain the cars. But, yeah. yeah um, uh, but th- th- this is an issue, I think, and, and it will come up, I think, a lot more when the new F1 rules come out as well. The WEC focus very much on the cost-cutting, but there's two sides to a balance sheet. Anyone that's worked in a business will tell you. It's not just about cost reduction, it's about you know, the value side as well. And sometimes these decisions are taken, as you just mentioned there, without actually thinking about what value it brings or what value is reduced by whatever it is they're doing. And 
Yeah, I mean, who thought not to put Silverstone on on the calendar at that point? I mean, it's just, you know, it, 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 it's a crazy situation. Um, so I'm glad it's back in. Um, but I think that the everyone, and they haven't got much time, but there should be a step back taken and think about the value to the fans, the value to the brands, as well as just wholly focus on cost cutting. And I guess that cost cutting was just to tempt the, the manufacturers in. But honestly, the difference between freighting all your kit via a, a ship or an aircraft is not going to make the difference between you deciding on LMP1 program or not. You know, a, a, a bigger decisions about reducing the hybridization or you know the the amount of testing or whatever it might be that's going to be more important than saving a few hundred grand here and there on on shipping or or, or flying um, kit around. So uh, yeah, they need to look at both sides of the balance sheet basically. Okay, go on. Well, that cost was aimed also at Peugeot, wasn't it? Who have um, recently said well, they haven't said no, but the ACO has basically confirmed that. Peugeot won't be coming because they're instead going to Rallycross, which is cheap. Obviously, has a you're putting a road car on a gravel track. Mm. Fans see it. It's one of the biggest growing sports around. It makes more sense for Peugeot. But Peugeot didn't actually say they weren't coming to Le Mans. But the ACO jumped and put out a slightly bizarre statement saying Peugeot will not be coming, and we are looking for we are open to other manufacturers. Mm. But who they are? BMW has been rumoured for years. But they committed Techno- to yeah, GTE. And the yeah. technology's not right. Yeah. So who is coming? Who is coming? Well, actually, if we're going to get the crystal ball out, well, actually, you need to get the crystal ball out. So this is we're coming towards the end now, but this is, this is where we go into the stuff that maybe makes the traditional motor racing enthusiasts feel, enthusiasts feel a little bit uncomfortable. But um, with your experience and expertise of um, GT Academy, World's Fastest Gamer, in 10 years' time... Is the world e-motor racing champion going to be more famous and more valuable than the world's the world Formula One champion? That is a brilliant question. I've never um, thought of because a minute ago, a mi- work here is done. <laughs> a, a minute, well, a minute ago, everyone thought that this was complete nonsense. This yeah. gaming stuff, and then suddenly it's. Um, you have to think about it uh, in, in a different light in terms of an, an alternative to, to the current um, physical championships. I'll, I'll just go back. If anyone wants to read the statement from the ACO on Peugeot, also look at the one when Audi and Porsche pulled out and you'll see there is um, yeah, some narkiness. <laughs> should we, we should publish just all three straight, shouldn't we, on the website? Yes. Yeah, and just yeah, publish the three. Podcast. Underneath the podcast. There, there we go. go. Underneath the podcast. Um, that's, that's, there was, I guess, three years ago, there's a, um, a report that states the 50 top sportsmen of the future in terms of commercial earnings, and one Jan Mardenborough was 50th. Um, so there was a recognition that you know gaming was a, a big thing at that point. And if you look at gamers that are playing games that most people that are watching this podcast never heard of League of Legends mm-hmm. uh, and, th- and this type of um, uh, game they're only millions I mean th- these, these kids are only millions of, of, of dollars uh, through prize money and, and endorsements and everything else and it's quite a hidden culture at the moment um, we've seen uh, recently in the last 18 months a lot of people dabble in um, the the gaming and, and esports mm-hmm. um, you know one one um, kid won $220,000 in, in Las Vegas for winning the Formula E event Formula E could have had a, a leading position in it they seem to have sort yeah. of 
walked not walked away from it but it doesn't seem to be as big a part of their strategy going forward now formula formula one have jumped in mm-hmm. um, and the funny thing is um obviously i'm in that space quite quite heavily and i've got a team um called esports and cars and we've got 22 drivers that are signed to us um, that are racing all different championships and we're signing some guys from the f1 game which wasn't something we were doing right, um, right. because the f1 game seen as a bit arcadey and we wanted to sort of be in in some of the other spaces and i'm now and i literally before i came on i had a phone call from one of the dads mm-hmm. that we're looking at signing this guy and he's he basically is a karting dad you know they're, really? they're they think that their son's gonna be the next big thing but it's going to be in the esports world yeah um i personally i think this is you know a few years away from that actually happening but the momentum is is there absolutely i i hope because i'm yes of course i'm in this space but i'm a traditionalist and i'm i'm as 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 you know i'm you know i I care about the history of our sport and and you know um historic racing is very important as well i think the the rise of historic racing gives us some comfort that there's always going to be those of us out there that will want the real thing to to carry on and yes we'll all get annoyed that Formula E is suddenly going to be the place where all the manufacturers are um, so the industry has to do its job to keep big events like Le Mans and others uh, you know really at the forefront of people's minds um, even if there's no manufacturers there we've got to come up with a solution that keeps Le Mans having 250,000 people there that yeah. want people wanting to watch it live on TV um, Indy 500 and, and all these other races um, otherwise, yeah, the, the, the sport will, will, will nosedive um, and it will become fully electric, which I think you know, everyone's very worried about. Um, yeah. the, you know, the answer to your question, I honestly don't know. And even though it would benefit me from a commercial <laughs> point of view, I hope not. I, I, yeah. I hope that the way I see esports is very simple. And there's a really great report from America, which is talking about, um, and it's an academic study, it's not a marketing study, which is about the Major League Soccer. And the conclusion of this study, which is all about how fast Major League Soccer has grown as a sport in America, their conclusion is one of the key drivers of that speed of growth was FIFA, the game. And it's kids playing on, you know, it's it's reverse. You and I, when we were younger, we were thrown a football, we kicked a football, and at some point through buying the jersey, going Mm. to a match, watching your mates play, playing for your local team, you ended up playing a game, a game of football on a computer or a console back in the day. The kids are doing it completely opposite. They're finding their sports through gaming. Yeah. So these kids, in this report states that they are playing FIFA. They know who the left back is at West Ham. So there's a kid in Alabama who's playing yeah, as you yeah. know the, the right back for Hull you know, yeah. at the moment on FIFA. And the, they go backwards. They, they play the game on the, on the, the PlayStation or, or Xbox. They then watch a... a potentially something on um, a, a hacked uh, stream from the <laughs> Premier League. Yeah. They might then buy the jersey on Amazon. Um, and at some point, after going to a game at the Red Bull, whatever they're called, in, in, in America, that they might actually kick a ball. Yeah. So we've got to get our heads. It was something you said right at the beginning. We've got to go heads round. How are kids finding sport? And if mm. we can think that they're finding sport through a multitude of new driving games, I mean, we've got you know three m- massive new games just come out. Plus, you've got the explosion of mobile games. You know, Real Racing 3 from EA. 380 million people have downloaded that game. There aren't 380 million, you know, motorsport fans around the world. So, uh, despite Bernie's numbers. Um, <laughs> you know, so we've just got to turn our heads around. But for me, I hope that it is 
uh, in parallel and the two things aren't compared or one's better than the other, I hope that we can see that the digital world will bring more um, people into the real world of sport. Whether yep. that means we do another GT Academy that you find drivers there or not, I think it's it, it has to happen because pe kids are racing on simulators and, and you know, karting is getting more and more expensive. But for me, it's the other side, it's the fans. You know, I, I talked to, I mean, you know, again, using Dickie Mead and, you know, mm. people get excited about certain cars because they played them in Gran Turismo 1. Why is the Cow Sonic Blue Super GT yeah. car that Jan Mardenburg drives so iconic? Because yeah. we all drove it Gran in Gran Turismo. Turismo. Yeah. So we've just got to put our mind in that. It's gone tenfold how important gaming is at that point. Um, but for me, it's just a feeder into, into the real world. Otherwise, yeah. we're all going to be sat in our um, bedrooms, you know, playing games and never go out and see yeah. the Goodwoods and the Le Mans of this world. Yeah. Darren, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. We seem to have covered everything from Dan Gurney to Mr. Blobby to Porsche 956s <laughs> to Manchester City football, eSport. We've really done well, I'd say, in the, in the, in the last hour or so. Um, obviously, you're welcome back anytime. Um, it, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you as well, Jack, um, for filling in those huge gaps in, in my own knowledge on sports car racing. Hopefully, we've demystified it a little bit for you. Um, and thanks, as ever, to Alan uh, for recording us and making us all sound great. Um, yeah, tune in. There's, there's a number of uh, things happening with the Motorsport magazine brand at the moment. We've launched a new series of uh, YouTube uh, films, uh, How to Drive, which actually features uh, Dickie Meadin slithering and sliding cars around, having I fun. I definitely need to watch that. Oh, they're great. Yeah, there's, there's some cool stuff coming up as well. Um, and obviously more podcasts to follow. Uh, thanks for listening to this podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz, and we will see you next time. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best. Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used. Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used but know what you're used to.